welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and we have a very exciting guest today, Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink is the author of six provocative books, including his newest, When The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, which has spent four months on the New York Times bestseller list and has been named a best book of 2018 by Amazon, iBooks, Goodreads, and several more outlets. His other books include the long-running New York Times bestseller, A Whole New Mind, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Drive, and To Sell is Human. His books have been translated into 39 languages. Pink was host and co-executive producer of Crowd Control, a television series about human behavior on the National Geographic Channel. He has appeared frequently on NPR, PBS, ABC, CNN, and other TV and radio networks in the U.S. and abroad. For the last six years, London-based Thinkers 50 named him alongside Michael Porter and Clayton Christensen as one of the top 15 business thinkers in the world. He and his wife live in Washington, D.C. They have three children, a college senior, a college sophomore, and a high school sophomore. Daniel, thank you very much for being here today. It's great to be with you. You know, your TED Talk has 21.6 million views and climbing all the time. So there's no argument that you're charismatic, but what is in that message that people just resonates with people? Well, I think part of it is, is that the, the ideas in that body of research, you know, that a lot of the motivational mechanisms we have in organizations have been oversold. In particular, the sort of key idea in that body of work the book Drive, which comes from 50 years of behavioral science, which shows that certain kinds of motive, there are certain kinds of motivators we use in organizations. The mainstay motivator is what psychologists call a controlling contingent reward. I like to call it an if-then reward. If you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. And 50 years of science tells us if-then rewards are great for simple tasks with short time horizons, and they're less great for complex tasks with longer time horizons. I think that people are persuaded because they might have had an intuition about this, um, but the intuition now is backed by a mountain of evidence. So you've said that there's a mismatch between what science knows and what business does. Absolutely. So why are business leaders so slow to catch on to, you know, reinforcing this intrinsic drive? I, I think it's a really good question. I'm really not. I'm really not sure. We can offer several possible explanations. So basically, if the science says that if-then rewards are good for some things, but not for a lot of things, and remember, a lot of work physical therapy is not short-term, simple, um, short-term and simple. It exactly. requires an enduring relationship, requires constant refreshing of your skills. It's a, you know, so a lot of work is, the work that remains is, you have a lot of like the sort of the simple routine algorithmic work is being outsourced and automated. Mm -hmm. uh, leaving people to do tasks that are harder to outsource and automate, which tend by their very nature to be more complex, more creative, more conceptual, and have longer time horizons. And so what we have is a set of motivators that are you know, great for 19th century work, right. decent for 20th century work, and completely outdated for 21st century work. And so the question then becomes, okay, what are the, as you suggest, Steve, yeah. what are these business leaders thinking? And I, I, I'm not sure. I think part of it is, it's complicated, part of it is that, remember, these if-then rewards do work for certain kinds of tasks. Mm -hmm. So, um, and remember those tasks actually were the mainstay of what companies did for it a long time. Used to be, yeah. Exactly. Right. So, so that's one reason, and you know, that's just basic inertia, I guess. The other reason is 
that, that short-term, high-stakes short-term rewards get activity in the short term. They really do. If you were to say, if you were to offer anybody, I'm going to give you a $10,000 bonus if you do X, Y, or Z in the next week, people are going to move, all right? You're yeah. going to get activity. You're not necessarily going to get productivity. You're not necessarily going to get creativity. You're not necessarily going to get good results, but you're going to get movement. And so I think that they get faked out by that. And I guess another reason is, is that, you know, if then rewards are very, they're easy. Mm -hmm. I just say, hey, here's a carrot, go get it. Whereas if I want to foster enduring motivation, what we know from the science of motivation is that enduring motivation depends on paying people well and then fostering a sense of self-direction, the opportunity to learn and grow, and a sense of purpose. And that's really hard to do. So if, if right brain creative leaders are needed in business, mm -hmm. then why are businesses so often run by the left brain? Um, Executives. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. What you really want is you want people in leadership who have both skills. Like you don't want to yeah. have a CEO of a public company who can't read a financial statement. Okay, that's that's a problem. Traditionally, the path the CEO has come up through finance, through operations, very rarely through, say, human resources, which is right. actually a, a, a tragedy in some ways because every company says, oh, our people are really what make us special, and yet very few people who come to the CEO job through the, the pathway of, of, uh, of talent. I think that's one of them. Another reason is, is that you have many CEOs, uh, particularly CEOs of large and public companies, um, have gone to business school, and business school is really, has until recently, has been a very, very, very reductive left-brain kind of education. And the other thing is, is, is I think, again, for public companies is that there is, or even companies owned by private, some companies owned by private investors, uh, there's an incredible pressure on short-term results. You got these companies doing every, you know, every 12 weeks, which right. means that they're in a, basically in a constant campaign of, of earnings calls. And so, even though you have executives who say, mm -hmm. "Yeah, I, I like to do these kinds of things," but if I miss my numbers this quarter, I'm dead. And so, I think it's there's no way to come up with a strategy that may take you down for a while but bring you up higher on the other end because I, there's just not time to, to make that right. Yeah. Especially for public companies, I think right. that for privately held companies, bootstrap companies, you can you can endure that. But again, you have a lot of you know. And I think it's also one reason we have fewer number of public companies than we had 10 years ago or certainly 20 years ago. But even companies that are owned, again, I'm talking about you know, larger enterprises, even, even companies that are owned by private equity investors, mm -hmm. they want their returns quickly too. Yeah. And so you just you sort of choose which devil you want to dictate your terms. So you can yeah. either have the market uh, create a verdict on you, you know, every, not only every day, but basically every second, or you can have you know, some um, rich guy, uh, private equity dude, yelling at you because <laughs> he needs to get his money out. So you have suggested that leaders need to get money off the table before they can help employees move toward the engagement in the organization. So since so many are focused on compensation, how do you get there? How do you, how, what do you do to get money off the table? Well, th let's, let's take two steps back and talk about money as a motivator. What the research shows is not that money doesn't matter. I think a lot of people have misinterpreted some of, those, some of this research and some of the popularization of the research to say, oh, money doesn't matter in motivation. That's absolute nonsense. Of course money matters in motivation. Money is extremely important in motivation. Uh, it just matters in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. That is, so if you, have, if you have people who are working in an organization, they, um, they want to be paid fairly. And if you don't pay people fairly, you 
are not going to get motivation. Period. It's a threshold motivator and an mm -hmm. urgent threshold motivator. And people assess fairness in two dimensions. They compare themselves to people who are inside the organization who are doing comparable work. And then they compare themselves to comparable people working at comparable operations that aren't them. And if you violate that sense of fairness, you're dead. And so, so that's the first step. The second step is, is, basic, is, is to recalibrate how we think about motivation. There's a, it's a very American notion that if we raise the salience of money, people will perform better. Right. And that's true for some things, but it's not true for everything. And for certain kinds of things, things that require judgment, discernment, creativity, you actually don't, if you want people to stuff envelopes, pay them per envelope. Get them thinking about how much money they're making per envelope. Mm -hmm. You will get more envelopes stuffed. However, it's a very task oriented. It's reductive. It's yeah. simple. It's algorithmic. We can write a recipe. You know exactly what you need to do. It's right. routine. However, for more complex creative tasks, you don't want people thinking about the money. What, what, what you want is you want people thinking about the work. And one way to help them think about the work is that they're not on them thinking about the money. So pay people enough, pay people fairly, and fair enough and well enough to, to um, have them focus on the work rather than on the money. You, you know, I, I actually think the beginning step in any compensation system is to hire great people and pay them generously. And you do that, everything else becomes much easier. As you said earlier, the if-then rewards destroy creativity. They can, yeah, sure. So how do you move a culture to embrace the autonomy, the self-mastery, and the purpose? It's really it's difficult if they are entrenched in that other way of doing things. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, the way that, like in my view, the way that organizations change, particularly big organizations change, is basically change in two ways. One, near-death experience. Yeah. They're about to collapse, they have to do something. The second one is that they change very slowly, bottom up through small wins. And the, the way to do that, I think, is for, is for leaders to, not to try to do everything at once, but to mm -hmm. do a few small things straight away. If they work, keep doing them. If they don't work, stop doing them. That instead of coming in with this you know, master plan. Right. Let's get some consultants. Let's here's our new plan. Let's execute the plan. Let's announce the plan. Let's have a couple of buzzwords attached to it. Maybe a slogan attached to it. Mm -hmm. Let's broadcast it from on high to try to inspire everybody down there. I think the evidence shows those don't work very well. What works better yeah. is a leader saying, "Okay, well, things need to change around here. Let me." canvas the organization for the best ideas, let me canvas the organization for the bright spots where things are working well, and let's try right away some small things that we can implement straight away and see if they work. And again, as I said, if they, if they work, keep doing them. If they don't work, stop doing them. So what you're describing is very much like a learning organization. Of so course. you try little things. You, if they work, you do more of that. If they don't, you readjust and you do something different. Right, but there's a huge, absolutely, you're, you're right. Unfortunately, there's a huge amount of executive energy and organizational wealth and time devoted to this, you know, incredible amount of top-down planning, which the evidence shows isn't that effective. Yeah, sir, so we headed for right-brain leaders to, to lead the companies of the Maybe. future? Maybe, but what we want is we want whole-minded leaders. We want people yeah. who can, you know, here's the thing, like in business, you have to make mm. a profit to stay, to stay around. Exactly. And yeah. so, so you need people who 
have those left brain abilities. The thing is those left brain abilities are necessary but they're not sufficient. And so what you really want is someone with a foundation of those um, logical, linear, analytic spreadsheet SAT abilities, mm -hmm. but then on top of that, someone who also has a sense of design thinking, someone who can see around corners, someone who can mm -hmm. synthesize, someone who can move across disciplines, move across industries, who can iterate, who can experiment, who can create new things, who has a good sense of empathy and understanding other people. That's mm -hmm. what—that's the ideal right there. Yeah. Now, uh, moving a little bit off of business to basketball, but we can use Go. the comparisons. Go. Now, I hear you're an admirer of two NBA coaches, Brad Stevens and Steve Kerr. I so, am. How'd you know that? Well, I just I wow, did a little research. So uh, what have they figured out in their approach to winning teams that others haven't seemed to figure out yet? I think there are a couple of things, and those are two somewhat different, different people. I'll tell you two things <laughs> I admire about both of them. Number one, so let's talk about Steve Kerr. First of all, he has great players. <laughs> Uh, that, that helps. Steve, Steve that Kerr, helps. the coach of the, the world champion, NBA champion, uh, Golden, Golden State, State Warriors. Warriors yeah. But if you look at what he actually does, he is incredibly generous with his players. He's not a dictatorial leader. And I don't think you can do that with a team of superstars. And yet what he does is he provides a coherent vision. He provides, if you ever listen to him on the bench, he provides incredible feedback. Mm -hmm. to his players in the moment. They're not doing performance reviews at anal performance reviews on the Golden <laughs> yeah. State Warriors. They're getting fast, frequent, and often very specific and fairly generous feedback. And he's mm -hmm. willing to use things, he's willing to talk about how he admires what people are doing, how he loves players like that. And so here's this guy in this, you know, professional sports is a very macho thing, very macho enterprise. Kerr uses words like love, mm -hmm. um, which I really admire. Stevens is really interesting in the sense that, I mean, if you look at especially last season, Stevens is a very holistic thinker, reads a lot of this research. Yeah. Like Stevens has really embraced the Angela Duckworth work on grid. He's used, actually used some of the drive stuff as well. And but one of the things that I really like about him is that in practices, he will stay, he will practice just as much with the 10th or 11th guy on the team, someone who's probably not gonna get into the game tonight as much time with them honing their skills. And last season, what happened, they had a huge set of injuries. And as a consequence, these players further down the bench had to step up, and they were ready. And they were ready. Now, you're a graduate of Northwestern University, yes. which is a academic institution. Then you go on to Yale Law School. Were you really in the bottom 10% uh, of your law class? I'm not sure exactly whether that was the number, but I did not do very well in, in law school. Just but I met my wife, so it wasn't a total loss. Okay, it just wasn't your thing? Law was just something nah, you thought you wanted to do? It didn't click for me. It really yeah. didn't click for me. You know, what's interesting is the contrast in, in say, say, medical school and law school. With medical school, you know, they really, they, they require a little bit more from the students. They, they yeah. ask them to do shadowing and hospital visits and things like that beforehand. So people come into medical school knowing kind of what doctors do, whereas most people coming to law school have no idea what lawyers do. And a lot of what lawyers do isn't, at least to me, all that interesting. A lot of reading. <laughs> it's more than that, a lot yeah. of, yeah. Um, so yeah. anyway, but yeah. you know, people have made more mistakes in their lives. So how does one get a job as the speechwriter for Al Gore? Well, it begins by having no other employable skills. Um, okay. So I, I worked on a lot of political campaigns and some political campaigns and then various jobs in politics and uh -huh. just in a completely half-assed way became a speechwriter largely because 
at one point somebody asked me to do it and I uh -huh. did a reasonable job of it and then they asked me again and suddenly that was my job. And that universe of people is so small, it's sort of like baseball managers. And there are so few people who actually do it that when a job comes open, there's a very small set of candidates. Was it something that you, you liked to do and would, would you write it and then uh, Al Gore would say this is great or was there a lot of back and forth? Or? It depends on the speech, there was a lot of back and forth. I mean, uh -huh. he was a good guy to work for. You know, there were days where it was, it was, I mean, it's a pretty exhilarating job in some respects, but it's an incredibly demanding and crushing job in other respects. Yeah. So people tend not to do it for, for very, very, very long. And the people who do it tend to be, as I was at the time, quite quite young because yeah. they're more resilient and more willing to deal <laughs> with some of that nonsense. Give our listeners some practical tips on how not to be so overwhelmed in their leadership positions. Oh, As an ex hard. executive coach I see that a lot that people are just overwhelmed with these these large jobs and how do you get it all done and that that's a problem. So give us some some tips and pointers how to. I think that <laughs> it's a it's a little bit counterintuitive and hard for a lot of executives to deal with. Ultimate solution is to do less and so uh, one of the things you see look at executive schedule is that they have very little time on their own, they have very little time to think. Mm -hmm. Basically pinballing from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. And, um, and I think what you, what, what you really want for an executive is a, a leader, let's say she's a CEO of a decent sized enterprise, is I'd like to see her have an hour of quiet time every day right. where she can read, where she can think, where she yeah. can do something else. Few organizations are doing this. You know, I think that if someone wants to have a meeting, they, the bar has to be, the default has to be, we are not having a meeting. Yeah. And you have to overcome the default. And right now, the mm -hmm. default is, of course, we're having a meeting because I'm not sure what's going on, but let's have a meeting about it. And if you look at these executive schedules, that, that's, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. And it is a giant waste of time. Yeah. A mentor of mine once told me that you need to schedule time, just like you said, to think. And people think that you're loafing or you're just kicking back or whatever, but you really need Don't, to do yeah. that. Uh, just there, a, there's no yeah. question about it. So what you have is you have them basically just chasing their tail yeah. all day long. And, and again, there are certain days when that's inevitable. You have to deal with some kind of, you have to deal with some kind of crisis, you get into the office with the best of intentions to do X, Y, or Z, and something erupts by 9.15 and suddenly your day is on a completely different trajectory. So it's the oldest leadership uh, phrase there is, is that surround yourself with good people and then let them do their job. That's so true. even though we know that, we're not very good at doing that. We need to be better at that. So in other words, you can't do it all yourself. You need people to do things that, Absolutely. that, that affect you. Yeah. In your most recent book, uh, When, you discuss timing and how important it is to act at the right time. So I'm intrigued about how our cognitive uh, activities ebb and flow during the day. So explain that a little bit about Yeah, I mean, this is also, you know, this stuff also <clears throat> is based on an incredible body of science. This is actually, a, 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 you know, I started looking at timing and realized that m two dozen disciplines have been studying timing mm -hmm. uh, over the last 30 years or so but they don't talk to each other. Economists look at it, and social psychologists look at it, and endocrinologists look at it, and chronobiologists look at it, and molecular biologists look at it. They're asking very similar questions, but they don't have any conversations with each other. And what we know from, from in, in sort of the day-to-day, -day, like sort of the unit of a day, is very simple. Our, just as you say, Steve, our cognitive abilities do not remain static over the course of the day. Mm -hmm. They change, okay? Our brain power doesn't remain the same throughout the day. It changes, and it changes in material ways. So the difference between the daily high point and the daily low point can be significant. And 
the best time to do something in a day depends on what you're doing. Right. And once you know that, like, like for me, I felt like, I, I sort of felt like an idiot. Like, you know, it's like I had to hit my 50s in order to realize that my brain power doesn't stay constant throughout the day. Right. So, th- so earlier yeah. in my life, I'm like, oh my God, I don't really feel as sharp today. I better buckle down. I better man up. I better, there's something wrong with me. But in fact, it's our cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. Right, so if you really know your coworkers and the people you work with, you know at what time of day you should approach them with something that you want them to really engage. Right, and what you want is you want the synchrony between someone's chronotype, which is are they more of a morning person or an evening person, which is not folklore, it's science. The whole field of chronobiology is devoted, or a big portion of the field of chronobiology is devoted to that. Um, you know, you want to you know, match up their type, are they, you know, Larks, owls are in between. Mm-hmm. Um, their task, what kind of task is it? Does it require intense focus or does it require more looser thinking? And in um, the time of day. And if you allow people to do that, you're going to get people are going to get more work done. But again, I mean, not to demonize meetings, but meetings are a big part of the problem. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, not to stereotype things, but a lot of people think that larks, meaning early people, are usually more successful, but I don't think that's really true. It just depends on um, uh, no, how you No, I mean, there is, a, there is a kind of a bias toward, toward, I mean, the whole corporate world is, is against yeah. owls. Yeah. People who are, people who have, again, an owl, you know, an evening chronotype is someone who just naturally wakes up late and goes to sleep late. And what we know is that there actually are some pretty significant personality differences between strong larks and strong owls. Strong larks are more extroverted and more conscientious. And I think that's in part because the, the structures of the world are more consistent with who they are. So it's easier to be conscientious yeah. when the world is starting at the time that you want it to start. Right. Owls actually have some problems. They're more prone to depression. They're more prone to addiction. Uh, but they also test higher on both uh, analytic intelligence and creativity. And they represent about a fifth of the population. And so yeah. if you have a work structure that's antithetical to a fifth of your mm-hmm. talent pool, that's probably a bad idea. It just popped in my mind. Maybe that's why uh, entertainers, uh, singers, bands, uh, entertainers uh, perform at night. They're, they're owls. They're, they're generally more creative people that work at, at that time of day. I, I mean, I think there, there is some self-selection in mm-hmm. professions. So if you yeah. look at something like... Like owls don't last very long as as uh, elementary school teachers, uh, yeah. and, or you know, because because the day starts so early. Yeah. They, might be, they could end up being great teachers, but they don't want to start the workday at seven fifteen. Yeah. Uh, whereas you could you could have people who are natively great jazz singers, but they're strong larks and they're not gonna be up in front of a crowd at one in the morning. Yeah, exactly. I like your advice of don't try and change yourself to fit the environment. Try to change the environment to fit yourself, kind of related to what we just talked about. But oh. some, some might challenge that as being a little bit selfish, maybe not a team player in business. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 actually, that's, I, think that's actually a, I think that's actually a fair point. The question is, where do we, where do we draw the line? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have somebody, if you have a talented person who is a strong owl, someone who just naturally wakes up late and goes to sleep late, requiring that person in the name of team playerdom to be at an 8 a.m. staff meeting every day is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. It, is a, it is bad leadership. That doesn't mean that that person, if you have this person who's more of an owl rather than a lark, that, it doesn't mean that every single time, whatever he or she wants, can opt out of anything in the morning. Right. Sometimes so, you got to buck up. Exactly. Sometimes yeah. you have to buck up. But in general, what we want, since we want people to do their best work, is we want to have that match between 
as I said before, between the type, the, the task, mm -hmm. and the time. Again, and it's just getting to know your team that well. I, I, and getting I'm, your team to know themselves, yeah, too. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't want yeah. to put all the onus on the, the, the leader. It's like people need to, people need to, to be good observers of their own behavior. Yeah. And, and, say, and they're very, there are many, many uh, scientifically validated tests to measure mm -hmm. you know, where you are on the spectrum of morningness to eveningness. And people should understand that. And like, like for instance, I mean, I, and I say that uh, as someone who didn't think about this until I started doing this research. I did the, the various tests, and what I test as, I test more, uh, more morning than evening, but not like extreme lark. Like not, I'm, I'm in yeah. the middle, but leaning toward morning. Yeah. And so, and it helps explain why it's like, okay, what I have to do to be really serious is I have to get up every day at 4.30. And, <laughs> and it's like, if I get up every day at 4.30, I feel like crap, yeah. you know? And yeah. so it's not a moral weakness. It, yeah, it simply it's means that like, your, I'm better getting up at, at 7.15 or 7.30. It's your body time clock. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you use research a lot to qualify your findings. Yeah. So are you actively involved in conducting research, or do you just search for what's already out there to... to there's so many people doing so much good work out there. So many scholars doing such incredible work. Um, what I do is I try to talk to them, find out what they're working on, um, read as widely as I can, try to understand what's going on, mm -hmm. find the great stuff, the great insightful stuff, and, and find the great insightful stuff. I don't have a lab. I'm a writer. I don't have a lab. I don't mm -hmm. have an army of, uh, of research assistants. Um, uh, graduate students. Um, so there are a few things that I do originally, but most of it, at least for the last few projects, has been looking at the work that's already been done that's out there that nobody knows about. So how does the timing on that go? Do you s come up with an idea and then go find the research to back it up, or do you read the research that then gives you an idea? Mostly the latter. Okay. For this latest book, When, about timing, that one mm. was a case of entirely the latter. It's like I said, geez, I'm making my own timing decisions in this really ill-informed, non-evidence-based way. I want to make them in a more intelligent way. Let me go look at the research. And I, I truly had no idea what the research said. So that was purely driven by, yeah. by the question. In a book like Drive, actually I knew some of the research and mm -hmm. I knew how it ran against the grain of what most companies were doing. So I had a little bit more of a theory of the case before I started the, the research. Right. With what we, you know, what we know now that motivates people and how we learn, so what do you think about it, what, how our schools are educating our future generations of leaders? I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, what, what you have, you know, the American education system, American educators get, I think, a really, really unfair rap. Mm -hmm. um, there are some, there are a lot of heroes in American education, people doing extraordinary work in a very difficult circumstance. I think most folks don't realize, especially public school teachers, how much garbage they have to deal with mm -hmm. um, in terms of standardized tests, in terms of, if we think about teachers as professionals, professionals like right. accountants or lawyers or whoever, uh, teachers as a class of professionals have very little autonomy. Mm -hmm. I mean, almost an appalling lack of autonomy that we, that we just naturally have for other kinds of similarly well-educated professionals. Um, they're also woefully, woefully, woefully underpaid. Yeah. And so the remarkable thing to me is that so many talented, committed people are still willing to do this work. Now that said, I think there's some big, I think there's some big structural challenges to education. That is, you know, we, we're, we're obsessed with the idea of scale. It made sense in the industrial age, makes less sense today. Um, there's relatively little 
there's some, there's relatively little experimentation and trying new stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, the people who really know best, that is the people in the classroom, to some extent the principals in the building, um, are, are constrained. They're constrained by um, policymakers, legislators in state capitals, people who haven't been in a school classroom for 30 years. You know, it's interesting too, changing things up uh, from a physical therapy perspective. There's a guy, a PT out in the uh, Bay Area of, uh, on the West Coast, who came up and, and approached um, uh, schools with stand-up desks for kids. Because, again, forcing an elementary school student to sit behind a desk in a chair all day long just does not make sense for right. how the body works. Right. So that having stand-up desks and then having a little foot lever where they can kind of push it back and forth, yeah. it, it just it changes how they learn. And so those are interesting ideas that I think we can explore more. You see some stuff even about, um, you know, just like really, it's really at the policy level. I just want to, like, like the problems in American education are due almost entirely to policymakers, not to classroom teachers. There's some classroom teachers who are terrible, yeah. um, just like there are some accountants and lawyers who are terrible, but in general many of them are just deeply, deeply committed and motivated, motivated people working inside a really, really messed up, a really messed up system. Yeah. So I um, couldn't get away without asking you this one. So how do millennials find the job that feeds their souls? <laughs> I don't know. That's not something. I, that's not something I'm staying awake late at night worrying about. You know, I think for for all of us, what we want to do, and you know, this, there's a lot been written about this. Another thing I'm saying is is that is is novel at all. I mean, what you want is you want some kind of overlap between, you know, something that will. Okay, so when you're looking for a job, you got to make a living. So that's one criterion. Another criterion is is it something that 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 uses your strengths? You know, especially. 10 or 15 years ago, that's when that strength explosion research came, the, the explosion of strength research came out. I think it's generally right that what we should be doing is we should be using our strengths rather than spending all of our time trying to improve the weaknesses. Exactly. You know, it does, does it make a living? Does it use your strengths? And does it contribute? And I think you look for something in that overlap. And the other thing about it is that the system is dynamic. So it's much more dynamic than static. So a job that fulfills that those three criteria today might not fulfill it two years from now. At the same time, you are a different person today than you will be three years from now, four years from now, five years from now. So I, I, my view for my advice for millennials or anybody is to, you know, stop looking for passion and soul fulfillment, which I think right. are fairly elusive, and say. What are my strengths and how can I use them to contribute? And once you do that, I think people are generally pretty happy. Yeah, and, and I think you make a great point that you change over time. I mean, when, when I was growing up as a kid, we were considered the laziest, most free-thinking, never-do-anything generation of our time. And now, in later life, we're, we're workaholics. So that's well, quite a change but, over but time. Also, but see, this is also part of why I'm very skeptical. This is why I, I don't know if I literally rolled my eyes, but I mentally rolled my eyes at the conversation about millennials because yeah. I'm not a big, big believer in strong generational differences for exactly the reason you're saying. that I think the history of human civilization is that every incumbent generation looks at the generation coming behind it and says, they don't work very hard, they're navel gazers, they don't pay their dues. Yeah. I just think that's the nature of generational change. That's yeah, all it's, always yeah. looking. Yeah. So you mentioned in another interview that professionals show up and start moving even if they don't really know the path yet. So this is kind of the uh, uh, sometimes you need to shoot before you aim concept. So explain from a leadership perspective uh, what that looks like. 
I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that, that um, you know, there's a kind of a narcissistic luxury that comes with excessive planning. Mm -hmm. um, you can wallow in that, you can, it all, it's all very neat, and then you gotta deal with the messy, chaotic real world. And so, what I have seen, you know, in my own trajectory, and even in the trajectory of effective leaders, is actually shrink that planning period a little, and just go into the mall with that ambiguity and uncertainty, because yeah. it's gonna be ambiguous and uncertain anyway, and I'm not saying eliminate the planning, thing at all. I'm not right. saying, you know, to use the cliche, you know, build the airplane while it's in the air. There's a certain a narcissistic luxury that comes from spending a huge amount of time on planning. It feels great. It feels like you're doing something. As soon as your plan hits the real world, things are going to change. It, it makes you think of how many great, very detailed, very sophisticated plans were were figured out but never implemented or never put into space. And, and this is true in, absolutely, yeah. this is true in every realm. And entrepreneurs will tell you this. They look back on their business plan two years later and it's like, whoa, this is not what we expected. I mean, I see it in a, in a mundane in a mundane sense in my own like work, which is not anywhere near the scale of a, of a, mm -hmm. of a business where, you know, I'll write a book proposal. Hey, here's the book I'm going to write. Here's what it's going to look like. And then when I actually get into the guts of it, it's like, whoa, okay, actually it's something else. And it's interesting. There's a book came out not too long ago that was called The Power of Two, which taking somebody like that planner and putting them together with a a driver and the two together can create great things. Uh, you know, That's another thing. Jobs yeah. and Wozniak or uh, Lennon McCartney or you know whatever the power duos kind of. And that goes directly to this point about strength. You're going to have a partner, you're going to have a collaborator. Make sure that she has strengths that you lack. So describe what it means to assume positive intent. I just think that one way to make the world or human relations slightly more harmonious when we, we have a sense that they're really not that harmonious, is mm -hmm. to just change our default. And I think our mm -hmm. default now is, 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 is overly cynical. I have no problem with healthy, I believe strongly in healthy cynicism and skepticism, or healthy mm -hmm. skepticism about mm -hmm. things, healthy skepticism about things. Right. But I think it, that can mutate into this kind of corrosive cynicism where our presumption with everybody that we meet is that they have an angle. <laughs> they are trying to do something. They're trying to fleece us in some way. That you know, if if we don't understand what they mean, it means that they're bad. They're they're not good people. They're yeah. trying to do something nefarious. And I just think, like, if that's your default, you're going to get less done. If you yeah. flip the default and say, you know what, this person, Fred or or Roger or Maria or mm -hmm. or Suzette, I am. Um, I'm going to presume they have positive intent and let them disprove it. Not everybody has positive intent, but I think most people do. And so, so if you presume negative intent and wait for people to disprove that, it corrodes the relationship. If you assume positive intent, I think you get off to a better start. And if people turn out to not have positive intent, yeah. cut them off. And so what you're basically saying is it's hard to build a, a relationship if we believe rela relationship building is the key by going in paranoid or exactly. pessimistic or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Now, I saw this myself in my own education, but also there's some good research on this, which is that you, you said the word pessimism. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and all these words swirl together, pessimism, cynicism, um, skepticism. Again, there are virtues in those kinds of things. There's right, virtues right. in pessimism. There's healthy pessimism out there. There's, as I said, there's healthy skepticism out there. But when it becomes basically the, 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 the main lens through which you, you look at the world, I think yeah. you leave capacity on the table. 
And in most professions, what the research shows, Martin Seligman has done some of this work, is that being pessimistic actually reduces your performance. But there's one profession where being pessimistic actually correlates with high mm -hmm. performance, and that's law. Oh, okay. So lawyers, good lawyers are often very pessimistic, very cynical, very skeptical. Maybe that's why you weren't a good lawyer, you're not pessimist enough. Well, I mean, part of it is, well, that could be. I mean, part of it is, is this, that, that's just not my go-to. That, right, it's not, not even pessimist. It's not, it's not my go-to move. Let's say you have something that's wobbly. Mm -hmm. All right, my go-to move is, hey, let's make it less wobbly. But another perfectly valid move is to say, hey, that's wobbly. Let me show you where it's wobbly and knock it down. That's a completely valid approach. It's just, this, it's just, it's just not my go-to move. You know, most leadership books say that listening is the greatest leadership tool. Are we listening any better? You think we're getting any better at this? What? No, uh, uh, the, uh, <laughs> good, good. The, That's thank good. You, thank you. Uh, <laughs> the, um, no, I think we're terrible at listening in general. And, and I've said this before, you know, like we go to, when we go to school, they teach us how to read, they teach us how to write. But they don't teach us how to listen. Exactly. They think because we have ears, we know how to listen. And listening yeah. is listening is is, is difficult. Now, I wouldn't say that I'm trying to become a better listener. And it, it's hard. It requires intent. It requires it requires practice. It requires effort. It's not something we do naturally because we have ears. Maybe in leadership uh, training or MBA school, there should be classes in listening. Because I don't think there are any, are there? I don't think so. I think it's a great yeah. idea. What person, present or past, would you love to sit down and just have a discussion with? The three that come to mind the most would be Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha. Yeah? Because, like, their stuff is still around. Yeah. You know, yeah. 2,000 years later. My yeah. stuff isn't going to be around 2,000 years from now. If we come <laughs> back, you know, 2,000 years from now, no one is ever going to have heard of me or read anything that I've done. Yeah. Uh, but Buddha and Muhammad and Jesus, hey, they lasted. And that's, I'm like, that's hmm, what were you thinking at the time? That's, that's who I want to talk to. So as we wind down here, usually when we uh, wind down these interviews, I always ask for a pearl of wisdom relating <laughs> to leadership. So what can you leave us with a pearl of wisdom relating to leadership? Well, I'm glad you touched on a lot of the pearls that mm -hmm. I would have offered up. I mean, I, you know, assuming positive intent is a really imp important one. Taking listening seriously is a really, um, is a really positive one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is going to sound maybe a little bit overly optimistic, but there are relatively few people who, at, in a moment of decision-making, there are relatively few people, after the fact, looking back on their lives, looking back on a situation, have regretted doing the right thing. Right. <laughs> and so, to me, it's like, if, if you have a choice between doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing, do, do the right thing. Like, you'll feel exactly. better about it later on, you know? It Absolutely. might actually slow you down a little bit in the short term, but yeah. um, doing the wrong thing, you don't want to make that a habit. And so if you yeah. just do the right thing and act as a person of, act as if, as, uh, just act with integrity. And again, that sounds super la-di-da optimistic, hey. but I actually think there's a hard-headed reason for that, because what you're yeah. doing is you're looking at, you're basically take, you're taking the long view. And um, I think most people have a, some kind of reasonably well-developed conscience. And when they look back on their lives and they realize mm -hmm. at times, as we all have done, we've done the wrong thing, they regret that. Yeah. Well, as an eternal optimist, I hope <laughs> we do more of that. Okay, so, thanks. Daniel, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for so, having me. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. If you'd like to look at our entire gallery of videos, please go to YouTube and search under Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. 
You can also go to my website, orange.coaching.com, and you can also listen to these interviews on the podcast through iTunes podcast. Just search Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson.